to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom and priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. And I wonder what more can be said than that. He loves us. And nothing in us deserves his love. It is his declaration to us. Uh, it, it reminds me of the story of Hosea in the Old Testament, the prophet who was told to marry Gomer, who was a woman of loose morals and unfaithfulness. And yet Hosea grew to love her despite her wicked treatment toward him. And God used that story to illustrate to us that though we're far worse than Gomer, if we're honest with ourselves, we're far less faithful. He loves us. And how do we know? The Bible tells us that he loved us and released us from our sins through his blood. So just as Hosea paid a large sum of money to buy Gomer back from slavery, and she sold herself into that slavery, likewise God the Son gave his life on the cross, shedding his blood to release us from our sins. So what is sin? Sin is a failure to love God with our whole being and to fail to love our fellow man as ourselves. And that's why Jesus went to the cross. To save us and release us from these things, both from the penalty that we deserve and the enslavement that results when we give ourselves to sin. The verse goes on, or the chapter goes on to say, He has made us to be a kingdom, priests, to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So shall it be. Amen. Over the years, there have been a lot of attempts to pinpoint the coming of Jesus Christ and his return. For example, even the early church fathers... Uh, one of them most notably was a man named Arrhenius, and there's a lot of things that he wrote that's still with us today. And he claimed that Jesus was going to return in the year 500. And he based it on the dimensions of Noah's Ark. I don't know how he did it, but... Uh, Pope Sylvester II predicted January 1st, 1000, because it was the end of the first millennium. And when it failed, they decided that it would be 1,033, that it would be the anniversary of his death instead of his birth. And uh, guess what? That didn't work out so well either. Emanuel Swedenborg reported that the last judgment had taken place in 1757. He based it on a supposed vision that he had and personal interactions with Jesus Christ over the course of 30 years. According to Swedenborg, the return of Jesus was not in the flesh, but in the Holy Spirit, and he based it on Luke 17. I'm not going to get into that, but there is actually a whole movement still going today called the Swedenborgians. John Wesley, ever hear of him? The founder of Methodism, tremendous preacher, predicted 
that the millennium would begin in 1058, or that it began in 1058, and that Jesus would come in 1836. Now, I don't know if you know much about Wesley's life, but he rode over 10,000 miles on horseback, and I think maybe he was getting a little saddle sore when he came up with that one. Charles Miller, the founder of the Millerites. Uh, there's actually a, a spinoff of that group called the Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, he predicted uh, October 22, 1844 would be the date. Charles Russell, the founder of Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, made many predictions, uh, stating that 1874, Jesus began ruling vis- invisibly from heaven. And I wonder what happened with other 1874 years. Uh, was he not ruling from heaven? But anyway, uh, then he said the day of wrath would be in 1914. Didn't work out so well. Uh, maybe you've heard of the Reverend Sung Myung Moon, uh, the Moonies. Uh, they declared him to be the Lord Jesus Christ returned at the age of 15. Then there was Edgar Wisenant. This is my favorite. He wrote a book entitled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. And when it didn't happen, you guessed it. He wrote a sequel (laughs) called 89 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 89. And he claimed that his mistake was that he forgot to count the year zero between the A.D. and the B.C. And that's why he was off. So that's why we celebrated uh, a special person's birth, 70th birthday a week or so ago because they're claiming to be 69 when they're really 70. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> and then, you, you know, undoubtedly heard of the Daybells. And did you know that they predicted that the second coming would be July 22 of this year? And two children died because of their fanaticism. And probably more. So the point of it is, is when we start trying to figure this stuff out. But the Bible doesn't give us the time. And there are no secret codes to decipher. There's no hidden clue, no spiritual clocks that set a thousand years as one day and and now we've got to figure out, you know, how, many, how long has it been since creation and all that. It could be. But Jesus says, would you stop worrying about the day and the hour and start living for me every day? Because nobody knows the day or the hour, only the sun. And you as well as I know that if we knew the day and the hour, we'd probably be more concerned about running up our credit card bill than we would be about telling people about Jesus. But when the timetable is not known, we don't want people to be deceived. Listen to what the verse says. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And what do we know about this? Well, it tells us that he's coming with the clouds, and that means several things. First of all, it's going to be an event. It's going to be a spectacle, and it will be from the heavens. 
In other words, if somebody says, hey, Jesus has come back, you can say to them, I know that's not a fact because I'd know it already if he did. Every eye will see him. It's a spectacle. And it's talking about the clouds, literal clouds. And I want you to consider several verses of Scripture that goes with this. You remember in Acts chapter 1, 8, Paul, the, uh, uh, Jesus said to the apostles, uh, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And then after he had said these things, you can see on the screen, he was lifted up while they were looking on. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And you know what they said? Why are you guys standing here gazing? <laughs> you know, and, and how could you not bl- blame them? You know, I mean, what, the, what did they just see was something incredible. But they said, guess what? He's coming in the same way as you've seen him go. As a cloud took Jesus into heaven, there's going to be clouds that bring him back. And I personally kind of think that the cloud isn't so much the white cumulus or the cirrus or uh, any of those, but rather the cloud probably has more to do with the kind of cloud that descended upon the tabernacle of Moses when he dedicated the temple and the kind of cloud that um, went into the temple when Solomon dedicated the temple, the kind of cloud that represented the very presence and power and glory of God. That Jesus was caught up in what we call the Shekinah glory. In Matthew 24, it says, The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. So Jesus said, this is how I'm coming back. The clouds in the sky, and everybody's going to see it. When Jesus was on trial in front of the Sanhedrin, and they were telling him, tell us who you are, come on. You know, and there were false accusations and things going on. They finally said, tell us if you're the Christ. Are you the Son of God? And he said, it is as you have said yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Those were the words that condemned him, and yet he was telling the truth. In the clouds. It's the same word as in Revelation 1-7. But the word has to do with power and glory. And so why are we concerned about this? Because the key phrase is that every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And it will be a sight for all nations to see at one time. And even the people of Israel will recognize their part and their Messiah. The Bible tells us he was wounded for our transgressions. He was pierced for our iniquities. And the chastisement for our well-being fell upon him. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord laid the iniquity of us all on him. For by his stripes we are healed. 
And the nations of the earth will mourn when they see him whom they have pierced. So Jesus was warning his disciples when they said, well, what's the sign of your coming? He says, if anyone says, behold, here is the Christ or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders. You hear that? I mean, there'll be powerful people. But it is to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, behold, he is in the wilderness, don't go out there. Or behold, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus is going to come in the sky with the clouds. You know, the people in Thessalonica were concerned. They were having people dying before Jesus came. And they were thinking, well, what's going to happen to them? Because those first century believers absolutely were convinced that it was going to be any day. If you listen to the urgency of Peter's preaching on Pentecost, it's almost like he's saying, listen, you've got about a week, you know. You better get it together. They were absolutely convinced. And then when, he, you know, he was led out to Samaria and the Samaritans became, you know, it's like, oh, I can see why God kind of held off, you know. And then when Cornelius came into faith and now the gospel was for the Gentiles, you know, you could see them going, all right, we can understand why God kind of slowed it down. Because Peter wrote, God's not slow about his patience, right, as some call slowness, right? He's patient toward you. He doesn't want anybody to be to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the people were going, what, what's happening? You know, believers are dying now. They're being killed for their faith, and some are just dying of natural causes. What are, what are we to make of this? And Paul says, I want you, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede, will not go first, above or in front of those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive and remain, do you see in Paul's words there what he's thinking? He's, he's like, I'm, this is going to come before I die. We who are alive and remain, that was his anticipation, that was his hope. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Where? In the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. You know, that's what we call the rapture in modern days. And I will not take time to speculate regarding either the timing nor the sequence regarding what happens with reference to the rapture and the second coming. Suffice to say that there are those who believe that there will be a seven-year period between when... 
the saints are caught up with Jesus and when Jesus actually returns to reign on the earth. Some say that it'll be somewhere in the middle of that seven years, and some believe that it is one and the same event. I'm not going to speculate about it. But one thing's for sure, there are no needed signs. There are no needed prophecies. There are no needed things to be fulfilled. The apostles thought it would be within the week after Pentecost, and we should really be thinking the same way. And here's the point. Don't be deceived by predictions or by people who claim to be the Messiah. There have been many, and there will always be those who make these blasphemous claims, and there will be people that will follow after them like sheep. Instead, we should worship the only one, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, who is and who was and who is to come. And he said, I'm coming in the clouds and every eye will see. So there won't be any mistake. What is the Alpha and the Omega? He is the first cause. He's the origin. Listen to this verse from Colossians. I'm sorry if it's small there, but. He rescued us. Remember, he loved us, released us from our sins. Well, Paul says he rescued us from the domain of darkness. He's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him, th- in, in him all things hold together. I've got to tell you a quick thing about that verse. When I was going to Bible college, I had a 1966 Buick LeSabre. It had 16 aircraft on it. It was so big. This thing was a huge, big old four-door sedan. I drove it up to Canada to go to school. And the transmission was starting to kind of go bad on it. And I needed to get back home to Twin Falls or to Mountain Home when we were living. And uh, I remember saying, and I had, a, I had somebody uh, give me an estimate for, uh, to fix it, and it was, I didn't have the money. So I laid hands on it. And I claimed Colossians, in him all things hold together. I said, Lord, will you get me home? He not only got me home, I sold the car to my sister, and she drove it for about six years. And after she sold it, the transmission went bad. Evidently, that guy didn't pray. But anyway, he's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. Wow, that's our Jesus. Hebrews said, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, in whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
This is who's coming again. Not some guy that's out in the wilderness. Not some guy that's trying to build a little old church movement and trying to rack up money and a following. This is the creator God who's coming again on the clouds. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that great resurrection chapter. I want to just go to the last couple of verses that are on the screen. God's putting everything under Jesus' feet. And in verse 7, when he has put all things in subjection under his feet, when it says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. What does that mean? It means the Father is putting everything under the feet of Jesus. And Paul's saying, now, understand, there's one exception, and that's the Father. But after he's put everything in subjection to Jesus, then Jesus turns around and brings it all to the Father, and he himself subjects himself to the Father, that God may be all in all. What amazing picture. When we see that, I can't imagine the mind-blowing reality of what we're going to witness. So where are you in relation to these things? What are you living for? He's coming. Judgment and justice with him. And he's going to mark out and separate those who are his from all the rest. For those in Christ, there will be joy of being with the Lord. And for those who refuse to receive him, there is the certainty of the eternal separation and being cast out into outer darkness. There will be a judgment. When he comes, he's not going, ah, come on, everybody, just come on in. He's going to give to those who did not want him what they wanted. And that is an eternity without him. And he's going to give to those who love him an eternity with him. And the problem is the people that are without him don't know or understand what that means. If you don't know for sure, if you're uncertain about this, then the likelihood is that you don't know him. Because if you know him, you know him. And if you don't, you don't. But how do you know him on the screen? I'm going to leave that up for you. Repent. Change your mind about your strategy of how you're going to get right with God and submit yourself to Christ Jesus. Receive him. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine him with him and he with me. And then believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And commit your life to Jesus Christ in everything from this day forward. The worship team is going to come. We're going to sing a song. And while we're singing, I'm going to ask that if you would like to receive the elements of communion today, we have a treasure box up here on the communion table. And if you would like to receive that communion as a step of saying, I believe, I know, and he loves me and he released me from my sins through his blood in his shed body. That's what the elements mean. The wafer, the body broken for us. The cup is the wine or the blood that was shed for us. And you come and take it and return to your seat and you can take it whenever you would like. 
We ask that you just kind of keep space. If people's coming up, just give some space for them to receive it. But just come get it. Return to your seat. You can take it home with you if you want. But we want you to be able to celebrate. He loves you. Gave himself for you.